0: Season 4, Episode 7, The Tomatley Plot. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to examining the ongoing Trumpist threat to electoral democracy in the United States. I'm Scott Kuhn. This episode will mainly concern itself with the Tomatley Plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Like everything else, the attack on democracy that culminated in the January 6th attack took place in various places. Carl once wrote that it's no accident that our word for place, or rather the German word for place, ort in German, is linguistically related to the word ordnum or order. Places impose their own kind of order on events, and situating events where they happened is one way to understand them. Now, there were many different places in the January 6th story. Uh, Most famously, you had the Willard War Room, um, Harry's Bar, where the Proud Boys would congregate, um, the Ellipse, uh, the the Capitol Complex itself, uh, the Westin Hotel in Arlington, Trump International Hotel, etc. There really hasn't been much coverage of what happened at Tomotley Plantation. Uh, which I think is part of the reason why the group around Powell, Flynn, and Byrne used it as they did. It was off the beaten path. They weren't going to have DC press congregating and observing their activities there. If you're going to have a treasonous plot, it's good to have a secure base of operations that's away from the prying eyes of neighbors and a 1,500-acre plantation really serves that function quite well. Two episodes ago, I spent a little time in the preamble to my conversation with Jules, discussing what other witnesses had to say about Powell in their testimony. This time, I'm mainly gonna rely on Powell's testimony before the committee from her transcript, a document that has its limits, but I'll also draw on other parts of the documentary record to include other transcripts and other documents, as always, Links are in the show notes. But first, let's get caught up on the numbers. The last time I did this properly, it was in the October 11th episode, The Beginning of Communism, and we had 1,064 defendants charged in the January 6th attack, according to Jan 6 data. As of today, we've had 1,193 people charged, an increase of 129 defendants. So this last period, a little over a month, has been the busiest period for arrests in quite some time. As I've mentioned before, we've spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about why this is taking so long with hundreds of already identified suspects who have yet to be charged. And many people think this has something to do with the docket at DCD, uh, DC District Court. And I am, I'm one of those, I'm fully in agreement with that. Um, They've made the decision that they are not going to transfer these cases somewhere else. They're not going to hear them in some other jurisdiction. They are going to hear them, um, as you would expect, by the way, under Article 3 of the Constitution, uh, in the jurisdiction where the crime is alleged to have occurred. Part of what's missing from the media coverage, however, is uh, just how many of these defendants are choosing to go to trial. Uh, About 20% of all January 6th defendants are going to trial. And that's about 10 times the rate in the federal system as a whole. And so arrests seem to parallel sentencing. So a sentencing will open up space on the docket. And so they can uh, charge and arrest yet another defendant. So more convictions seem to lead to more arrests. There's probably a lag time, somebody could probably model it, but the relationship seems pretty well established by now. And so we've had a lot of convictions, we've had a lot of sentencing, and so we appear to be, once again, playing catch-up, and it results in new cases. So, who's being arrested at this point? Well, it looks like the cases are being evenly divided between felony and misdemeanor parading defendants. One of those charged in this latest batch of defendants was one Mario Maris, 49, of Ballinger, Texas, who is charged with possessing a handgun on Capitol grounds, uh, yet another firearms allegate violation that's been alleged, despite the claims, of course, that the insurrectionists were entirely unarmed. Also charmed, charged was Lee Stutz of Terrell, North Carolina, who charged with AFO, assault on a federal officer, one William Lewis of Illinois, a hashtag Carhart Wasp, who's also charged with AFO, John O'Kelly of New York, charged with AFO, a Troy Klein of Indianapolis, charged with AFO, and Gregory Yetman of New Jersey, charged with AFO. In addition to these, several of the defendants were charged with the 1512 count of obstruction of an official proceeding. So, one of these defendants, uh, Gregory Yetman, made national news when he fled into the woods behind his house when the FBI came to arrest him at his home in Hillmet, New Jersey. Yetman's home is adjacent to a large country, uh, large county conservation area of over 1,600 acres. Um, When the FBI attempted to arrest Mr. Yetman, his brother Todd reportedly told the FBI, quote, Go get Hunter. Go get Joe Biden. Every one of you is corrupt. You're all Joe Biden's puppets. And he wanted to know why they were not arresting BLM and Antiva. This of course is silly. Thousands of people were arrested in the summer of 2020 and more to the point, they didn't storm the Capitol in broad daylight and attempt to end an electoral democracy in the United States. In any event, Gregory Yetman is on video using a police-issued MK-46 canister stolen from law enforcement to spray officers with uh, pepper spray on January 6th. Yetman, a former National Guard military police sergeant, held out for 48 hours before turning himself into police. Yetman would have undoubtedly been released pre-trial had he not decided to flee when they attempted to arrest him. So even though he assaulted police on camera, um, he's now a possible flight risk, so he has uh, played some stupid games and is winning stupid prizes. So there have been some notable verdicts and sentencings. Uh, One of these is for defendant that I spent a little time discussing in the podcast, Federico, sorry, Federico Freddie Klein, 45, of Falls Church, Virginia. Klein was, of course, a Trump State Department employee who took part in the assault on law enforcement in the Lower West Terrace Tunnel and was found guilty. And he has been now sentenced to 70 months incarceration. So he's going to serve about six years in federal prison. Even with good time, it's going to be about six years. Also sentenced, John Sullivan, a.k.a. Jaden X. Jaden X, Sullivan, is is of course well known as someone who's been targeted by January 6th apologists' conspiracy theories who claim that he was Antifa-slash-BLM-slash-on-the-left, and that he somehow, on his own, instigated the January 6th attack, let alone the fact that, of course, he had a camera in his hands pretty much the whole time. That is not what he was about. He is, in fact, an opportunist. Um, He spent the summer of 2020 making videos of protests and selling these to the highest bidder in the news media for tens of thousands of dollars. So, of course, the allure of January 6th was something which he could not resist. Um, His Brother, one James Sullivan, exchanged messages with Rudy Giuliani claiming that Sullivan was Antifa. So you've got this one brother who's just basically this videographer who is out to make as much money as he can by recording violence on camera for the news media. If it bleeds, it leads. And you've got another one who's a far right activist who has apparently Rudy Giuliani's phone number and is willing to sell his brother out. Sullivan was found guilty of five felonies, including the 1512 obstruction charge, along with two misdemeanors. Now, there's no telling, really. He hasn't been sentenced yet, uh, but he'll probably get about the same amount of time as Jake Chansley, the, the QAnon chaman, who, coincidentally, is now running to represent Arizona in the U.S. House of Representatives. We have, of course, discussed the plea arrangements for Jenna Ellis, Scott Hall, and Ken Cheesebro and uh, Sidney Powell. Well, apparently, uh, videos of their proper uh, hearings were released to ABC News, which prompted Fonnie Willis in Fulton County to ask for an emergency gag order. <laughs> apparently, there is no protection for this evidence, um, which is absurd. But these were released to the news media, and they, of course, made them public. There was some speculation about who, who might have done it, of course, with uh, the usual Trumpist defenders saying, well, of course, it was, it was the prosecution who, who leaked these, which is uh, absolutely absurd. They wouldn't endanger their case by doing that. It turns out that the videos were leaked by one Jonathan Miller, the attorney for Misty Hampton, one of the co-def- co-defendants in the Fulton County case. Hampton was the Coffee County elections director who allowed so-called forensics experts from Sullivan Strickler Law Firm to access voting machine data there at the behest of Cindy Powell. We'll, we'll return to that in a moment. She faces seven counts, including the RICO charge, but also six conspiracy counts. Miller had claimed that there was a public interest in making these videos public. Um, you know, I I kind of agree with that, but Judge McAfee has disagreed. Also in Fulton County, uh, Fonnie Willis had asked for bond to be revoked for Trump co-defendant Harrison Floyd, who is charged in relation to the alleged harassment and intimidation of Ruby Freeman. Perhaps predictably, Floyd has been attempting to intimidate witnesses in his posts on the website, formerly known as Twitter. Floyd, Floyd is currently free on a $100,000 bond. Uh, Floyd had posted things such as this, quote, If you really cared about black men, you would, ten wouldn't have died in nine months at the Fulton County Jail! Exclamation point. You're revoking my bond while you're at a fundraiser for election? Did somebody pay you for this? Fani for DA does not care about black people. Now, Floyd has posted multiple times about Ruby Freeman, a key witness in his case, particularly, uh, you know, I mean, the case generally, but particularly his case. Floyd claimed that Willis leaked the proffer videos to ABC News. Again, of course, we now know these were leaked to ABC News by Jonathan Miller, the attorney for Misty Hampton. So, uh, predictably, all of the shenanigans are in the defendant's side of the table. Uh, As of this recording, uh, Floyd has had his conditions uh, for release uh, modified, but he is still currently out on, uh, exempt from pretrial detention, out on bail. In another development, um, there's a case in Colorado where a coalition of voters had asked for Donald Trump to be excluded from the ballot uh, using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, the judge correctly ruled that Donald Trump was himself guilty of insurrection. Of course, again, the 14th Amendment was uh, this section, Section 3, intended to apply to former Confederates, but the language was general. Uh, by the way, I have to apologize. Apparently, there's a bear in the neighborhood, perhaps some jackals or some other animals, and my dog is taking very strong exception to that. I, I've got him now at my feet, and I'm going to pet him as I do the remainder of the podcast. In um, any event, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So the judge in this instance in Colorado has ruled that, well, yeah, Trump did actually violate this and should be ineligible except for the fact that the presidency of the United States, the office of the presidency of the United States, is not an office for the purposes of section 3 of the 14th amendment. This, I'm not an attorney, but as a political scientist, I will say that this is dumb. This is a stupid opinion. Um, It's what I would have expected, by the way. I would not expect that courts would ordinarily preempt the democratic process by an act of judicial fiat, even if it concerns a constitutional provision. Um, there's a question of whether or not uh, the 14th Amendment is self-executing. Uh, you know, I mean, like being 35 years old, I mean, just automatically renders you ineligible to run for the office of the presidency, being under 35. Um, perhaps, you know, being in insurrectionist should also do that. Nonetheless, in Colorado, it has been ruled that this, indeed, is not the case. Nor do I expect any of these other remedies, uh, these other attempts to remove Trump from the ballot as an insurrectionist under the 14th Amendment, wherever they try to do it, is to be applied. For better or for worse, as we've seen with the Supreme Court, after their decision in Bush v. Gore, the courts are reluctant to be outcome determinative. And we saw that uh, in the January, sorry, in the 2020 election as well. Courts decided that they were not going to throw the election to Donald Trump. So you live by this judicial independence. You you die by it as well. Um, In that sense, I think it's rightly decided that the basis of it is kind of dumb. Um, Clearly, the office of the president of the United States is... Uh, an office for the purpose of the 14th Amendment. I do not think that when it was enacted by radical Republicans during Reconstruction that they had intended to allow Jefferson Davis to be eligible for the presidency. If you're ineligible to run for the House of Representatives, if you're ineligible to run for the Senate or other federal offices, clearly the presidency and the Vice Presidency of the United States are also federal offices even if the the oath is slightly different. That's a very esoteric question, and this is one of the cases where I believe that uh, the more you know about the law, sometimes you can make some decisions that just because they're counterintuitive doesn't mean that they are right. Another possibility that is being bandied about in court nowadays is the possibility that cameras might be permitted in the federal courtroom in the January 6th trial of Donald Trump for January 6, scheduled for next march, before Judge Tanya Chutkin in the D.C. District Court. A press consortium has asked for the proceedings to be televised, and Trump's own defense team has weighed in to say that they, too, would support televising the trial. Now, I understand that many people who see Trump as an existential threat to electoral democracy would support cameras in court. Nonetheless, this is a complete non-starter. It's just not a thing that is going to happen. Judge Chutkin has no discretion to make it happen. It's part of the federal rules of procedure. I have my own substantive arguments about why I think it's a bad idea. Trump is very good uh, at appealing to his base on camera and he would find a way to turn these televised proceedings into a circus and possibly incite more political violence. But more to the point, it just can't happen. The judicial conference who sets the rules uh, regarding the federal rules of procedure in federal court are inherently at least small-c conservatives. Even if they were inclined to make an exception, This isn't the case that they would use to experiment with cameras in federal courtrooms. And moreover, Jack Smith's team weighed in with an 18-page brief opposing the use of cameras in Judge Chutkin's courtroom. So all the people who are supporting this idea, um, they are now, they're they're, they're in opposition to Jack Smith. And, you know, if we had had this long-standing tradition of cameras in federal courtrooms for, let's say, the last 20 years, obviously it'd be fine. But we do not, and this is not the case that would be the first time to do this. This would be an experiment, and we do not need to be doing experiments in what is arguably the most important case against Donald Trump. So in his brief, Smith's team notes that this is the first time that this issue has come up, and that these requests have always, always been uh, rejected. And they cite the ruling in the 1996 case against Timothy McVeigh in the Murrah bombing uh, as one example. "Quote: Every court to have considered the constitutionality." of broadcasting prohibitions on otherwise open trials, has concluded that, to the extent that they restrict speech at all, they are content-neutral time, place, and manner restrictions fully consistent with the First Amendment. Page 11 of the 18-page brief. Uh, Going on to page 12, quote, The interest in a fair trial in turn ensures critical subsidiary interests such as protecting the truth-finding function of the court, ensuring the preservation and value of live witness testimony, guarding against witness intimidation, and serving judicial efficiency and economy. On this score, the knowledge that cameras are present in the courtroom can affect witnesses, jurors, and attorneys in subtle ways. Not only will the participants be cognizant of being televised, but in today's world, A broadcast is not limited to television, and the recording exists not for a moment, but for all intents and purposes, indefinitely. So, yeah, I mean, it seems quite like 99.99% probable that Judge Chutkin will side with Jack Smith on this. Um, If convicted, if Trump wanted to appeal on the basis of having been treated differently from other defendants, A televised trial would be exhibit number one. Uh, Even if he was the one who had asked for the process to be televised, in the first instance, you know, I mean, certainly disingenuousness is no bar for uh, Trump attorneys. Uh, So, if you really want this trial to be televised, I I would suggest protest something else. Expend your energies elsewhere. The federal statute of limitations for January 6th, expires on January 6, 2026 and we are nowhere near done. Even when it comes to suspects, whose identities have been confirmed and sent to the FBI for investigation. So we can ask why none of Trump's many January 6 elite level co-conspirators have yet to face charges in federal court. Um, But as for the question of cameras in the courtroom, it's just not happening, not in this case. Probably not in any other federal case, in federal court, anytime soon. So we can all save our energy for causes that are less quixotic. Now, that being said, um, we did have call-in lines available during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Those were allowed by the Judicial Conference, and they worked fine. I mean, I used them many times. Um, They didn't turn federal courts into circuses. So, maybe as a compromise, perhaps we could allow that. If there's a public interest in uh, getting press access to these proceedings, then perhaps the call-in lines could be reinstituted. But the idea that you're going to have wall-to-wall coverage of these trials on Fox News, it just sounds to me like a recipe for Trump to engage in further acts of stochastic terrorism. And that is the very last thing that we need uh, in our struggle to protect electoral democracy in the United States at this time. In related news, for all the people who've been saying that the uh, stolen documents case in Florida with Judge Eileen Cannon is some kind of slam dunk, forget about it. So that case is effectively dead in the water. Uh, Judge Cannon has basically postponed it indefinitely. Um, she's got a date theoretically on the books, that date isn't going to happen, but does conflict with the Fulton County case, so as long as she doesn't actually scrub that date and propose a later date, it means in effect that she's managing to block both cases. Of course, Judge Cannon completely in the tank for Trump, so nothing is going to happen there. Now, the question is, you know, whether or not in Georgia they're going to move ahead. Uh, realistically, why not? I think they should charge ahead in Fulton County, um, in full knowledge that Cannon's not going to do anything. You know, I mean, she's not going to actually try the case in May as is currently scheduled. So um, they're keeping it open. They're deferring to the federal court, but at this point, they should just act as if that's fine, uh, because you know th- they can correspond. They can ask Judge Cannon if it's going to go ahead. But in actual point of fact, um, she's not going to say, you know, she's, she's a bit of a double bond, right? She wants to delay, 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 because she's wholly in the tank for Trump. Um, this is not an appealable matter. This is not something that will make her look bad. Yes, federal judges hate to be reversed on appeal, but this is the, a matter of a court date. So it's not something that can be appealed. Therefore, um, you know, yeah, she could just delay it indefinitely. So for people who, you know, have been talking about well, yes, you know, the the, the the evidence is strong, blah, blah, blah. It's dead in the water. It's dead in the water and it's dead in the water indefinitely. So the real case is once again the case in D.C. with Judge Chutkin for next March. Not the case in Florida before the most uh, Trump-loyal Trumpist judge in the entire country. And she will find other ways to be able to delay this case until after the election, um, at which point, of course, again, Trump will lose and he will claim that he uh, the election was stolen from him and we will be back where we were on January 6, 2021. So um, there's a sense in which we don't have to worry about that. I don't feel like I need to cover the case in Florida, the so-called uh, stolen documents case anymore, uh, precisely because it is in front of a judge who is 100% wholly in the tank for Trump. I mean, as much as we might complain about the, the federal, the Supreme Court and Trump appointees there, they at least have denied certiori in some of these kinds of cases, whereas Eileen Cannon has done nothing but issue rulings uh, in Trump's favor and uh, I have very little doubt that she will find a way to postpone this case indefinitely. All right, so let's move on to the tomato plot. Now, um, obviously, you know, I've talked about the pleading of Sidney Powell and Ken Cheesebro. Very important. A lot of people in the media seem to be focused on Jenna Ellis. Um, so I, I don't feel the need to report on that nearly so much. But um, a bit like uh, Bob Ellis, uh, sometimes I think that, you know, these younger female attorneys were hired by Trump um, for reasons that don't necessarily have anything to do with the work that they've actually done. Um, And so that's not the case with, you know, his volunteer attorneys, right? All the work was really done by these so-called volunteer attorneys, one of whom, of course, is Sidney Powell. Now, with regard to Sidney Powell, one of the problems with her, with regard to the government, whether it be in Fulton County, where she has already pleaded, or in D.C., is that she may seem like an undesirable witness to actually put on the stand. To this day, Sidney Powell believes that Trump actually won the election. She thinks that voting machines can be controlled by wireless thermostats, And that zombie Hugo Chavez conspired with Dominion to flip the election for Biden and a whole other laundry list of absurd things. She reminds me a bit of another uh, lawyer who's facing January 6th charges, Kelly Sorrell, who's been found not competent to assist in her own defense. You know, like Sorrell, also believes in things that are nonsense. But unlike her, Um, Powell, at least, was sane enough to take the deal. Uh, We've seen this a number of times in January 6th cases, perhaps notably in the uh, seditious conspiracy cases when some of the witnesses who took plea deals and who might have been expected to testify, nonetheless, were not called. But even if they decide not to put Powell on the stand, um, you know, she may well have documents or other information that would be useful to the prosecution. Other than Scott Hall, we don't have any plea agreements with anyone in connection with the DeMotley plot other than Powell at this point. Now, there are interesting facts in her transcript that I think are not crazy and can be verified by other witnesses and documentary evidence, although I do think there is at least one clear instance in which she is lying, which we will get to. When you look at the nexus of where she's at, and what she was doing and with whom, I don't think that the fact that she might not take the stand is particularly important. Now, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. When I initially read her transcript, I didn't even take notes, mainly because I had accepted the crazy Sidney Powell narrative. Mea culpa, I believe I was too quick to dismiss her testimony. Um, there are still things that we can learn from it even if we accept the fact that Powell is an unreliable narrator. Cindy Powell at least isn't a stupid person. In fact, she's, she's quite bright. Um, and like anyone else, you know, she's the hero of her own story. Now, I did not have the possibility that Powell might flip on my bingo card. And by the way, the same is true, as I have mentioned, of Cheesebro. Both of them are committed trumpets. I didn't think either one of them would go flip. Um, Cheesebro, especially a surprise, with Scott Hall, there's a possibility that he had direct evidence that would implicate Powell. And so, to my mind, that perhaps was what caused her to flip. Um, you might remember the sequence of events, right? So, you had initially um, Cheesebro demanding a separate trial, then Powell joining that. Then you had Scott Hall flipping, and then you had both Cheesebro and Powell um, flipping. And so, interestingly, you know, perhaps uh, Hall had information against Cheesebro that is something that also we don't know about. There's a very good uh, likelihood that he was in contact with Powell, if not Cheesebro. Uh, of course, I do most of my work through the transcripts. And there's a very big difference between Cheesebro's transcript and Powell's transcript. Uh, Cheesebro took the fifth uh, over 100 times. In fact, I think it's like 153 times. Um, Whereas Powell at least wanted to convey the appearance of something like cooperation. And that is something, by the way, that is common to many of the defendants who are attorneys. The ones who decided that they don't care about being a lawyer anymore... They're the ones who are going to take the fifth or invoke attorney-client privilege or some other kind of privilege. Uh, Many of the ones who actually theoretically care about being able to practice law in the future, they are the ones who are at least going to attempt to try to seem as though they were testifying truthfully in front of Congress. Uh, Something which, you know, perhaps some of the non-lawyers who took the fifth should have at least paid some attention to. And so, again... The question of Powell's motivation. Um, If you read Powell's transcript in the context of the transcripts of her co-conspirators, one thing becomes clear. Sidney Powell is motivated by a sense of grievance at having been wronged. Giuliani and many of the others around Trump use Powell as a scapegoat. And they want to present a narrative that says, No, I'm not crazy. I didn't do anything wrong. You're thinking of Sidney Powell. She was the captain of Team Crazy. I'm just someone who's trying to serve my president. Uh, One of the things about her proffer agreement video that was leaked is the section in which she describes a meeting with Rudy Giuliani in which Giuliani called her a bitch, among other things. Now, nominally, Powell and Giuliani were, of course, on the same side. And in fact, when you look at what is alleged, the conduct that is alleged, they were doing very similar things. In fact, in many cases, they were working in in, uh, the exact same areas, Um, you know, trying to obstruct the certification of the 2020 presidential election results. And yet, of course, they like, you know, it reminds me of the feud between uh, Roger Stone and Steve Bannon. They wind up ultimately Uh, in a feud with one another. And, of course, you will remember the episode in which I reviewed Eric Hirschman's transcript, in which Hirschman uh, constructed a narrative in his his testimony uh, in which he basically presents himself as a guardian of democracy, as the captain of Team Normal, um, as someone who's trying to keep Trump away from Sidney Powell, Uh and people like Sidney Powell. And, you know, pointing the finger at the idea that the problem at the Trump White House were things such as the December 18th evening confrontation confrontation between Powell, Flynn, and Byrne, and quote, Team Normal, rather than anything to do with um, Hirschman or the people around Hirschman, uh, the people who are also represented by Hirschman's old law firm, i.e. Ivanka, Jared, Alex Cannon, etc. So, Cindy Powell is going to say some nonsense at some point. Um, Her transcript is on the record, but, you know, she has no problem with making nonsensical public statements. Today, tomorrow, next week, she's going to continue to believe the things that she wants to believe. But for her... This may be part of what she sees as her redemption arc. She isn't ever really going to acknowledge that she was operating out of her depth, that she was submitting cases to the Supreme Court about election law, when she, in fact, herself has never actually worked as an election lawyer. She's not going to admit that she was wrong about election fraud, or the involvement of Italy, or Hugo Chavez, after Hugo Chavez was actually dead. that's not happening. None of that is happening. And you can read about it in pages 35 through 37 of her transcript. If you want her short summary of the nutty things that she thinks are true about election fraud in the United States. That being said, you should also understand that this is a woman who believes that she has been wronged, and that her grudge against the people who worked with her in the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election is not, in my opinion, entirely unjustified. They were doing the same things, or similar things, and they've tried to throw her actively under the bus in the effort to avoid responsibility. And I expect that she will be just as dogged in carrying out her vendetta as she was in her efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in favor of Trump. I would not underestimate Sidney Powell. Um, you know, she's the kind of woman who looks like a, uh, a middle school vice principal in charge of student discipline. Um, at some point, you know, she looks like she made a very stern face and it just kind of got stuck that way. She reminds me from, of Nurse Ratchet from Cuckoo's Nest combined with Annie Wilkes. Kathy Bates' character from her Oscar-winning performance in 1990's Misery. Um, I would not underestimate Sidney Powell. She is not, you know, a shrinking violet. She is not going to give up and she believes she hates Rudy Giuliani and she hates the people who have characterized her as the, the captain of Team Crazy and She got a very sweet deal in Fulton County. And if they offer her a deal in DC, I don't see her not taking it. She's gonna take the deal if only for vengeance. So given Powell's agreement, her plea agreement in the Fulton County case, it might not be unreasonable to assume that she might also seek to reach such an agreement in a federal case. And so, as I mentioned before, other various parts of the conspiracy have been covered. Other different locales have been covered. The Trump International Hotel, the Little War Room, of course, what happened in the White House itself, covered mainly by Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. But Tamatly has been undercover. So, let's talk about that for a while, because I, there's a sense in which I think the semiotics of Timotley are important. Timotley is a South Carolina plantation owned by Republican attorney Len Wood, sometimes called a celebrity attorney. Tamatley was established in 1698, and was a home of generations of enslaved people. Up until 1865, when General Sherman's army of the Tennessee confiscated the plantation, and burned the main house to the ground. In 2020, Len Wood bought Tomatley and the adjoining Cotton Hall Plantation to create a property of over 1,500 acres, which he today operates as a B&B. That's right, not just one, but two plantations. According to Charles Bethea, writing in The New Yorker, Wood said in a phone interview, quote, I don't hunt, I don't fish, I don't farm, but I obeyed what God, what I felt like God, wanted me to do." So the Lord wanted him to open a bed and breakfast with rooms that cost up to $650 a night. Now the area is known for quail hunting, it's known for fishing and rice farming, and yet Wood says he doesn't do any of those things. They don't apparently interest him. So why would he want to own a plantation? Well, would Lucian would, by the way, which Lucian, that is, straight up uh, satanic church name. Um, Lucian, you know, he's an Atlanta area area resident. Um, You know, I'm guessing he's buying into the Terra mythology, right, he's going full gone with the wind, and he's getting his own enduring monument to what many people like him tend to regard as the good old days back when people like him would own other people. The most ardent southern conservatives, the advocates of white supremacy, have always claimed that their project was one that was endorsed by God. Wood first rose to national prominence, representing Richard Jewell. Who was wrongly accused of the Atlanta Centennial Olympic Park bombing, a bombing that was actually carried out by the white supremacist Eric Robert Rudolph. Rudolph, a North Carolina resident via Florida, was a is a, I should say, Christian identity white supremacist who believes that the white race is God's chosen people. And he's currently held at USP Florence in Florence, Colorado, on a life sentence. Wood has also represented Howard Stern, Kyle Rittenhouse, Nick Sandman, and Herman Kane. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's a bit of a split between Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, but Wood seems to have a foot in both camps. Rudy Giuliani's close associate, former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick, uh, is also affiliated with something called the Fight Back Foundation which was something that Wood founded uh, in association with the Rittenhouse Defense, but today serves as a dark money group. It funds, well, we really don't know. That's why it's a dark money group. We don't know what it funds. Another founder of Fight Back who since left the group is John Pierce, an attorney who's represented Dozens of January 6th defendants, including Peter Schwartz, Lucas Denny, Ethan Nordeen, Joe Biggs, Zach Reel, Charles Donahue, Robert Minuta, Kenneth Harrelson, Joshua James, and Ryan Samsel. Although so many of his clients wind up ultimately firing him, that I don't know how many of these cases he wound up seeing through to the end. One of his most notable clients in my book, anyway, was Shane Jenkins, who, as I believe I mentioned at the time, had Pierce as his attorney back in August of 2021. Uh, but Pierce sent an associate of his who's not an attorney in order to represent him at a hearing as Pierce himself was under treatment for COVID-19 or a nervous breakdown or perhaps in rehab depending on which version of the story you believe. In any event, Jenkins, of course, ultimately fired Pierce, um, got big mad at him, and like many of his his other clients, winds up firing him. So there's an association between Linwood, this uh, coup plotter, and uh, the attorney who is responsible for the defense of probably more January 6th defendants than anyone else. So, sorry to digress, but, you know, in the January 6th story, you're only apparently ever two degrees of separation away from Shane Leighton Jenkins. Back on track, Wood never got a subpoena from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, which is really odd because he winds up playing a major role. Now, according to Wood, the team of people who came to DeMotley to work on the attempts to overturn the 2020 election results were basically uninvited interlopers. Powell asked Wood if she could come there, and according to uh, reporting that, you know, interviews that he's given, um, Wood says that Flynn and a slew of other people just sort of showed up uninvited. Uh, according to a reporting by CNBC, Wood told them this, quote, They set up in my living room and one of the sunrooms. They looked like Election Central. They had computers, whiteboards. They were working. And, quote, I remember making a couple of phone calls to speak to individuals that she was trying to talk into being plaintiffs, I believe, in Georgia. And, quote, I think we had kind of passing conversations of what she, Powell, was learning. I know she talked to me about information about Venezuela. Now, of course, if anyone, if you follow the podcast, you know how much I love the January 6th committee transcripts. This is one of those cases where I really wish there was a transcript, and yet there isn't one. The committee spent a whole bunch of time interviewing random MAGA defendants, uh, but they didn't think to interview Lucian Wood. Wood's claim that Powell, Flynn, and the others were basically interlopers seems really incredible. It's just bizarre. If they were trespassing, Wood could have called the sheriff at any time. He owned not one, but two plantations. And South Carolina law enforcement operates in the interest of the class of people who own plantations and has always done so. The most obvious answer here is that Wood is simply lying. Sidney Powell was working on Trump cases in Georgia, and Lynn Wood was also working on Trump cases in Georgia. They were working together in uh, at least three different states. The fact that Wood now claims that he didn't mean to turn his plantation over into an epicenter of Trumpist activity when there's no indication that he ever attempted to remove anyone from his property really strains credulity. Wood has also filed his own lawsuit in Georgia in federal court, a case in which he tried to make some rather novel legal arguments that the court found rather unpersuasive. Wood appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. They denied certiori. um, The circuit court, uh, or rather, Chief Circuit Court Judge William Pryor, a George W. Bush appointee, didn't think that these were things that the court could really adjudicate at the time because, at, quoting for Pryor's opinion, quote, because Georgia has already certified its election results and its slate of presidential electors, Wood's requests for emergency relief are moot to the extent that they can serve the 2020 election. The Constitution makes clear that federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. We may not entertain post election contests about garden variety issues of vote counting and misconduct that may properly be filed in state courts." End quote. So if Wood's involved in federal election litigation in Georgia, and Powell is too, and they're also working on a lawsuit in federal court in Wisconsin, and they're both working on and in addition they're to working together on a case in Arizona, it's logical to assume that everyone who's there at Tamatley was there with Lucian Wood's permission. Now, Wood was never actually formally a part of Trump's legal team. Unlike Powell who was, but then was fired and then continued to do work for him anyway. The fact that Trump had so many lawyers who were doing work for him, who were not retained by him in any official capacity, is also a fact pattern that I seem, I think goes to men's rail. Trump and Giuliani knew that these cases were nonsense. Moreover, they were based on perjured testimony, which is something that I do not think has been emphasized enough in the media. This was a massive perjury mill. Tomotley's plantation's main agricultural product at this point was perjured testimony. False affidavits that were obtained from various Trump supporters regarding the facts surrounding the 2020 election. Wood voluntarily relinquished his law license in Georgia in July of 2023, but he had claimed that he was intending to do this all along. Uh, He was just retiring, but again, that is is really difficult to believe. Uh, You know, could be because he was operating this vast network that was supporting perjury across several states. Tomalley Plantation is located at 300 Cotton Hall Road in Yamasee, South Carolina. On December 1st, 2020, Wood tweeted about the Insurrection Act. Uh, people talk about Powell, but Wood is really just as bonkers as Powell is. Uh, he claimed that Trump privately invoked the Insurrection Act and is still actually president somehow. A parlor on January 7th, 2021, Wood wrote that, quote, many traitors will be arrested and jailed over the next several days. That actually, I mean, in a sense was kind of accurate. Um... But not probably in the way that he expected. Wood and Powell worked together, of course, in the cases in Georgia, Wisconsin, and Arizona, and probably others of which I'm unaware. So now let's turn to uh, Powell's transcript. And again, this is uh, an account of the goings-on at Tomatley that I think has not received enough attention from you know, the media or the, the people who uh, are, are investigating these things. And it's important, and just as important as the West and Arlington, just as important as Trump International, just as important as the war room at the Willard. There were election interference uh, operations ongoing at Motley from the middle of November until at least the end of December. Powell describes her co-conspirators thusly, and that was Howard, Julie, and Emily. These were in D.C. They took the role primarily in drafting all the pleadings. There was the group at Timotley that included Seth Keschel, Carisha Keschel, Linwood, of course, me, Jim Penrose. I'm trying to visualize the room they were all sitting in and tell you who was sitting there. Sharon, whose last name I don't know. That's all I can think of right now. That's from page 53 of her transcript. She also describes two separate groups. One, uh, Defending the Republic, which, of course, is the uh, group that she's set up that has raised millions of dollars and has paid for a lot of different things, uh, including the Oath Keeper's Defense, and another one called Crack and Wood, which was an alliance between, of course, herself and Lynn Wood. And, again, you have Sidney uh, Powell and Lynn Wood working together on these lawsuits, but, of course, in order to file these lawsuits, they need evidence, right? They have to be able to make a showing that they have some kind of evidence. Fortunately, they could just find random Trump supporters on the ground and get them to swear to just about anything, and they did. Dustin Stockton played a role in this campaign, um, but he claimed that even as he was doing it, he didn't think that all the testimony that he was gathering from these affiants would be particularly useful in court. To quote from his transcript, uh, question. And for the like sworn affidavits, were those things affidavits you obtained or they had already been prepared? Answer. Primarily, they had been submitted to Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood. I remember them specifically, like she submitted her... I remember reading through her submission and it was like hundreds of pages long with, right, lots of different things. And I remember, I remember it specifically because we disagreed on some of the tactics in that some of what was included there had come from people that we had kind of deemed when we evaluated them to be less credible. Question. So did you say you disagreed on tactics with Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood? Answer, yeah. So when we saw what they were doing publicly and presenting publicly, and I read through the hundreds of pages of what they had submitted to the court, I remember thinking that it had, it was a mistake to include some of the people that they included because we'd met them at the stop. I think in several instances, we hadn't even allowed them to speak on the stage because we found them that incredible. Page fifty-four. So Stockton was evaluating the, uh, the these affiants and found that many of them were lacking. And again, of course, Stockton is a Trump trumpist activist, and you know, uh, two. I mean, there, there's like different standards. Like, okay, well, this is too nuts for Dustin Stockton. Maybe there's. Two nuts for Rudy Giuliani, but there's no, there's nothing that's too crazy for Linwood and Sidney Powell. And again, I don't know why Linwood always gets off, right? Linwood for some reason escapes mention, but he and Powell, according to Powell's transcript and all the other ancillary transcripts, they were working together, hand in glove. They were working together quite closely. They signed their names to at least. Two, uh, sorry, three different uh, lawsuits at the state level as co counsels, right, acting as lead attorney. So I don't know why all the attention is on Powell and very little attention is paid to Lucian Lynn Lincoln Lynn Wood. One of the uncredible affiants that Stockton testified about in his deposition was a Becca Bennett. Um, Becca Bennett shows up in the transcript of Jason Foons who uh, gives actually a more detailed description of what she had to testify about. Question. Okay. We'll return to Becca, Rebecca Bennett, but just there to clarify, you mentioned her to be before, but you didn't meet her at either of the November or December rallies, Or in the January 6th events? Answer. From my understanding, I was even confused because she was beating around the bush and being really weird about how I knew her. She, I should have known her or she was on the bus tour. I'm thinking, what the hell? I was on the bus tour. What the heck? So I come to find out she was on the bus tour December to the January leg of the bus tour. They did something after the December event. And she was part of that. Question. In the lead up to January 6th? Answer. In the lead up to January 6th. Question. Okay. Answer. And then I found out that she was, again, self-admittedly reporting to people like Jim Penrose, Sidney Powell, and Lynn Wood's team. She threw out Mike Lindell. But she was the one going overseas to get those servers and that election information. And personally, I think she stole it if she did get anything. Pages 61 to 62. Personally, uh, I don't think she did get anything. I think that uh, she's a fabulist. Becca Bennett, Rebecca Becca Bennett is an absolute fabulist. One of those people that they just included who is, uh, quite frankly, bonkers. All right. So let's move to Flint. Flynn, of course, was also at Timotley, and he takes the fifth whenever he's asked any questions about Wood and the Timotley team. Of course, he takes the fifth about everything. Um, He took the fifth when he was asked whether Powell asked Wood if the plotters could use the place, whether he and Powell went there shortly after Election Day, whether he was there around Thanksgiving, whether Powell asked Wood to make calls to people who were willing to serve as plaintiffs in Georgia, whether Powell talked to Wood about certain information she had had regarding Venezuela, whether Seth Kesel reached out to Flynn on LinkedIn asking him to help work on the case, whether Byrne was at Tamatly with him, and whether he flew on Byrne's plane. Uh, that's at various places in Flynn's transcript. I mean, again, he took the fit about everything, but you can see uh, Flynn's involvement in Tabatly. And again, why is this important? If Powell actually does wind up flipping in the federal case in D.C. before Judge Chutkin, then Flynn is also implicated. Another Trump insider who... Uh, apparently really is cooperating sincerely is uh, Alyssa Griffin and she was asked uh, about comments that Wood had made about the Insurrection Act and martial law on December 1st, 2020 quoting from uh, Griffin uh, Ferris she got married so no longer Alyssa Ferris, now Alyssa Griffin um, quoting from her transcript quote, question, all right And just before you left, this is about December 1st, Lynn Wood, another person who's been involved in various post-election issues, he tweeted or publicly mentioned, I can't remember what, but he talked about martial law and using the Insurrection Act in some way related to the election. Do you remember any discussions with campaign folks or people in the White House about either martial law or the Insurrection Act related to the election? Answer. Not related to the election, no. We've Insurrection Act came up during George Floyd, but was knocked down, but I did not hear that in context. Page 145. So again, this kind of shows how the summer of 2020 was a prelude to the run-up to January 6th. A lot of these very same ideas, martial law, insurrection act, that got floated in the summer of 2020 during campaign when things looked like they might not go well for Trump wind up reoccurring, reappearing in the lead up to January 6th after his election loss. On November 6th, there's an email exchange between Donald Trump Jr. and Mark Meadows regarding Georgia. Question. And this is from uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s transcript. And did you, why did you send this to Mr. Meadows as opposed to say, you know, emailing this to your father, you know, Molly Michael or whoever else you could get an email to your father with this advice? Answer, I imagine, I don't recall specifically, but if I had to guess, it would be expediency. You know, my father does not email, so it was probably easier to go through a chief of staff than it would be to go through an assistant. But, and he trails off here, um, you know, he knows that Molly Michael at this point, according to Hirschman's testimony, according to Molly, Molly Michael's testimony, his email is being filtered. And this is, I think, independent verification of Hirschman's system for filtering Trump's email, although again, I'm not sure it was nearly as foolproof as Hirschman depicts it. Question. You follow, you respond to Mr. Meadows and explain, in sum and substance, that you were down in Georgia with Nick Ayers and Sonny Perdue and talked about bringing in Lynn Wood to assist in the effort. Is it right that that day, or on or about that day, You did a press conference in Georgia about seeking to challenge the results. Answer, yes, that is correct. Question, and Mr. Meadows tells you to connect with Cleta Mitchell who's on the ground there and he'll send you her contact information. Did he end up doing that? And did you make contact with Ms. Mitchell? Answer, I know that she ended up showing up there so I don't know exactly how that happened or if he did it through others, but I know, you know, the end result is that she was there. From 35, page 35 in Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony. So that brings up again the effort to insulate Trump from quote team crazy, which was something that apparently Eric Kirschman was involved in. And I think that if Donald Trump um, Jr. You know, sort of implies that that's the case, I think that that, you know, that part of it's confirmed, although, again, um, it's pretty evident that there were other means by which people could communicate with Trump. Um, you know, it, it seems clear that people could always walk paper down to his office and he would eat it or burn it or flush it down the toilet. So, in Hirschman's testimony, he described a system uh, that he set up in an effort to insulate Trump from from Team Crazy. Again, Trump's a crime boss, he prefers not to have written records, and as I've discussed before, he has no email address. Instead, he relies on his underlings to communicate via email for him, and the most direct route to Trump uh, in his presidency was set up through Molly Michael who would print out certain emails for Trump to read as a hard copy. But after the first impeachment, again, Eric Hirschman inserted himself as a gatekeeper and acted as a kind of shadow chief of staff. Uh, This is from Hirschman's transcript. Answer. So I told Molly that for certain groups of people or certain amounts of information that she would not deliver to the president until she sends it to me. And then my view was that 90-plus percent, 99% of the stuff, I wasn't going to have delivered to him. Question. And that includes things from Rudy Giuliani? Answer. It would include, I don't know about this one. I would have to see the attachment. I don't know if it was public information or something. Possibly yes. But by and large, it would include things from Rudy Giuliani as well. Question. Why did you think that there were some things from Mayor Giuliani that were not worth the President's attention? Answer, it's not limited to Rudy. It's, my general view was that the amount of information that was coming in, it was, I thought it would be unfair to any client, let alone the President of the United States, to be getting inundated with information that supposedly tracked all types of wrongdoing when I couldn't tell how bad the information was or not. So I just decided, I'm stopping it. And I told Molly, and eventually I told Meadows that that's what was being done. End quote. So again, uh, you know, people talk about Mark Meadows and how vital he was. Yeah. Uh, why was Hirschman trying to circumvent him? Because he knew that uh, Meadows was acting as a conduit for the insurrection. Uh, you know, We had this advisor to the president. Telling the chief of staff to go fuck himself. Um, There were important parts of the job of the chief of staff that, you know, Eric Hirschman, who has no real, he's a minister without portfolio, um, he's just going to assume this. This is part of the chief of staff's duties, and Eric Hirschman is simply doing them. Now, according to Hirschman, the only way to email Trump was to email Molly Michael, and he himself was acting as a filter. Okay, I know that was a digression, but all that to say there are instances in which this appeared to be not the case. Eric Erickson was acting as a filter, except that he sometimes wasn't. What if Trump gave some number of trusted persons another route to reach him? Um, Again, we find that that could be the case if that's indicated in Donald Trump Jr.'s Transcript, an alternate route where that they, a workaround that they had uh, for this Hirschman plan. And by the way, you know, it is fascinating why, um, you know, Eric Hirschman, acting at the best perhaps of Kushner, why why is it that he was given this much latitude? Again, Jared Kushner, uh, and I'm not the first person to note this, but Jared Kushner is given a wide amount of latitude. Trump tells everybody to fuck off, right? But not Kushner. So, I mean, there's there's something else going on there. Um, But, you know, Eric Hirschman is basically Jared's guy. And uh, therefore, he gets to act as a shadow chief of staff. All right. So, again, from Donald Trump Jr.'s transcript. Question. And did you... Why send this to Mr. Meadows as opposed to say, you know, emailing this to your father, you know, Molly, Michael, or whoever else could get an email to your father with this advice? Answer, I imagine. I don't recall specifically, but if I had to guess, it would be expediency. You know, my father doesn't email, so it was probably easier to go through a team of staff than it would be to an assistant. Yeah. You follow, you respond to Mr. Meadows and explain in some substance, you are going down to Georgia with Nick Ayers and Sonny Perdue. So again, um, this is an alternate route, whereby people like Donald Trump Jr. could circumvent the system that Hirschman had set up. So Linwood, Sidney Powell, and anyone else at Tamatley could reach Donald Trump through Mark Meadows rather than going through the system uh, that Hirschman had implemented using Molly Michael. They had a means of reaching Trump that didn't include this supposed filter that Hirschman in his transcript uh, presents as being airtight. So, you know, again, Trump... uh, Hirschman seemed to believe or at least represented that this was an airtight system. He alone controlled what Trump saw during this time frame. There were workarounds. Donald Trump Jr. knew about them. Mark Meadows was the conduit for these. And again, that is why, you know, one of the reasons why Mark Meadows might be such a cute person. Um, They're never going to flip him, by the way. I mean, there are people who's like, "He's he's cooperating, he's cooperating. I would love it. That'd be great. The the evidence isn't really there for that yet. And, of course, that leads aside the other route whereby they could just reach Trump directly, which is instead of sending to Mark Meadows, they could just um, post it publicly, right? So you just post something publicly that Trump himself could have access to. So however they did it, the Tomotley conspirators did find a workaround to get directly to Trump. Uh, the one person that Hirschman mentions by name when it comes to election disinformation is Lynn Wood. Question, uh, sorry, answer. Somebody testified that X amount of dead voters had voted, and whoever was questioning the experts said, there were that uh, that was in my district. And I happened to call, you know, the first group of them. And I spoke to six of them. And they're surely alive, right? Question, who was that? It was, answer. It was, I mean, you can search it. But it was some, at some hearing, there was a question and testimony that someone on the team was putting forth as to, maybe it was Lynn Wood, right? As saying that X amount of dead people were voting and they gave a listing of people. And one of the elected officials had the list in front of her. And she's like, I called this group of people. And they seemed to me to be very much alive, right? You know, and that debunked it. And there were things where they were doing juniors or seniors or changes of addresses in which somebody had gone on to military service. Just mistakes along those lines. And the campaign people were somewhat, I think, Incredulous. That's from page 157 in Hirschman's transcript. Let's see, who else was at or involved with Tomotley? Uh In the Kristen Davis transcript, interviewers mentioned that on November 30th, 2020, Roger Stone had claimed that Lynn Wood was one of the persons he was advising regarding challenges to election results. It's on page 77 of Davis's transcript. And Stone had also mentioned Powell and Arthur Schwartz, a friend and consultant to Donald Trump Jr. So again, the feelers of Tomatli go out to unexpected places or perhaps places that we should expect in Roger Stone's case. In the Ziegler transcript, right before the staff asked Ziegler about Peter Navarro, and his relationship to Steve Bannon. They asked Ziegler if he knows Lynn Wood, and whether he's ever been to Tamatley That was on pages 16 and 17 of the Garrett Ziegler transcript. Now, my own personal belief is probably yes, but we don't have any information, right? I mean, he's working with the same people, he's doing the same kind of things. Uh, Byrne talks quite a bit about Ziegler, and Ziegler is collating things. He's collating material, he is basically the, the magpie who is gathering up all of the collected lies and nonsense and uh, putting it together in the Navarro report. So there's a possibility even that some of the Navarro report was uh, worked you know completed, composed at tomodli, or um, you know that Ziegler was simply relying on people who were submitting these affidavits to Linwood and Sidney Powell and possibly in contact with them as well. Now I long student again that because they ask Ziegler whether he's at Motley and there's that rule of thumb that prosecutors don't ask questions to which they already don't already know the answer. That means he is. But I've read enough transcripts at this point to know that, in fact, sometimes they do ask questions to which they don't know the answer. Um, sometimes they, they, they will go on you know, a little bit of a fishing expedition. It's not like a uh, courtroom in that sense. They're not doing this in front of a jury. Now, Byrne mentions Ziegler as someone that he had met. Um, but this presumably was from a time at the Westin, which predated the falling out between Powell and and Giuliani. There's also, by the way, a bit of an odd section in Byrne's transcript, uh, which I'm not really going to elaborate on, but I'd like to point you to, which is that Patrick Byrne didn't apparently for quite some time realize that Gary Ziegler actually worked in the White House. Um, he thought this was, quote, some sort of social connection that, you know, basically Ziegler was one of the many volunteers, right, who were volunteering. To work for, uh, do work for Trump in his legal appeals. Um, and of course, uh, again, as I've mentioned before, Ron Ziegler was the, uh, is the cousin of Garrett Ziegler. They actually look quite similar. They're from the same family. So, you know, there's legacies going back to 1865, and then there's some legacies that are going back to Watergate. Uh, that are, are happening here in this story as well. So, Powell outlines that the group of people who are working with her, again, in this, uh, what we call a, a fraudulent affidavit mill. Um, there's a group of people in D.C., Howard klein Hindler, Julie Haller, and Emily Newman. Uh, you may remember Newman. Uh, also, Julie's brother, Peter, and one Brandon Johnson. All again, all working with Powell, but in DC, and they were all initially volunteers. Although Powell, in her transcript, page forty-two, claims to have all written all of them checks from her law firm, Sidney Powell PC, rather than for some reason, uh, her you know various different little uh, fundraising things. She's for some reason writing a check from her law firm. I mean, which which does make sense if this is quote legal work, right? So, again, the the crime here, in my mind, is the affidavits, right? Uh, This nationwide coordinated effort to give false testimony in the election cases. And it's a conspiracy, and it is coordinated, I believe, by uh, Lucian Wood and Sidney Powell from Wood's plantation. And, again, no one ever seems to think about the optics of this, but this is the first Major party to nominate a black woman, um, you know, to the vice presidency, and this is a party where you've got 81 million people, many of whom are black, and Wood and Powell, when they want to point around and say those those voters are suspicious, they're looking at places like Atlanta, they're looking at places like Philly. They're looking at places like Detroit. They're always pointing the fingers at places where black voters live. And so it's not white supremacist enough for them to do this in Arlington next to, um, you know, the, the former the site of the former plantation of Robert E. Lee. No, no, they have to go down to a plantation in South Carolina, the first state to secede from the union. So there's this all-white group of lawyers, and they have no problem with any of this. And they're sitting, you know, sipping mint juleps. And Sidney Powell is getting the best work done she's, she ever has done, apparently. Um, she likes to, she has very specific working conditions. She mentioned in her transcript she has to be isolated. She really just wants to be in her little cocoon, in her room, reading and writing all day. And so again, Timotley is a comfortable place for a genteel uh, person like herself, apparently. So that's, that's one kind of crime that could potentially be charged out of the Tamatley plot. Um, there's also, of course, the efforts to steal voting machines and improperly access them, and this involves people we know were at Timotley. Uh, Of course, again, not just in Coffee County, Georgia, also in Michigan, Colorado. Stephanie Lambert-Gentilla, a Michigan attorney who was working with Wooden Powell, not at Commodely, in Michigan, uh, became the third person in Michigan to be charged by the Michigan Special Prosecutor, D.J. Hilson. Hilson claims that the Cyber Ninjas head, Doug Logan, and his computer expert, Jeffrey Lindbergh, were also deceived by the Michigan ring and therefore won't be charged, which is just sounds like a way to secure their cooperation. I don't, you know... I don't buy that they were deceived because, of course, Logan was participating in these kinds of fraudulent efforts elsewhere as well. So this, of course, involves Phil Waldron, uh, who you will remember is the leading proponent of the idea that Trump should declare martial law and seize voting machines, Uh, a question, of course, that caused him to invoke the Fifth Amendment in his testimony when they asked him about it on page 37 of his transcript. Waldron is the author of the infamous Martial Law PowerPoint and played an integral part in uh, this effort to secure and possibly, if needed, manufacture evidence of fraud. He's unindicted co-conspirator number six in the Fulton County case. Waldron was also in direct contact with Mark Meadows. Again, that's the conduit to Trump. Um, And he met with Trump and Giuliani at the White House on November 25th, 2020, he personally briefed senators on his findings, uh, including the claim that U.S. elections equipment was routed through a server in Germany somehow. So, this is all connected to their research of so called uh, you know, election fraud and uh, Dominion, Smartmatic, that kind of thing, and the data breaches that they conducted in the process of this. Waldron was one of the operatives who was given the data from these data breaches, and so he could be charged with some of the same sorts of crimes that the Fulton County cyber criminal defendants also face. But much like Flynn, of course, Waldron has ties to the U.S. military. He is in Flynn's circle and has ties to U.S. military intelligence. And this is where the legal conspiracy meets with the militarized part of the conspiracy. All problematic actors, uh, people who are basically disproportionately military retirees from the U.S. military intelligence community, Um, Flynn, as many people have reported, has his own network of people, and they are their own node of the plot um, that is directly tied to to monopoly. So we have, you know, these lawyers looking to disenfranchise people, and we have a section of retirees from the U.S. military intelligence community working to do the same thing. So in other words, we have people who ought to be protecting the country, on one hand, working to subvert democracy, and we have people who ought to be protecting the rule of law as officers of the court, also working to subvert electoral democracy. And again, they're working together hand in glove, uh, providing this false information that winds up uh, ultimately culminating in the January 6th attack, which I believe grows kind of organically out of these efforts, as well as the efforts to conduct the, the fake elector plot. Um, this is its own part of the conspiracy. Others, uh, it's centered on a group that Byrne called the Bad News Bears that operated out of Trump International in D.C. So Tamontley is, is kind of a satellite operation for uh, the part, this part of the Flynn conspiracy. Um, but Waldron, by the way, I mean his, his connections show up in surprising ways. Um, for example, he shows up in Mike Roman's transcript when committee staff asked Roman about an email from Catherine Fries about witnesses who were lined up to appear in the Pennsylvania election fraud hearings run by the Republican Party there. That's on page 46 of Roman's transcript. Roman also produced a document to the committee that read in its entirety, I think this may be a text message or maybe a note to himself, quote, ASOG Phil, sick, Warren, and that's obviously is Phil Waldron, right? Uh, but he makes a note to himself referencing one Phil Warren, rather than Waldron, ESOG, Phil Waldron, 200K electronically adjudicated ballots. Novus Software defaulted ballots to Biden. On page 53, uh, they, they reference this document in um, Mike Roman's transcript. So again, all of these actors, even you know, from a fake elector's plot, even also working with people who were known to be at Tamatly. So if electoral democracy in the United States is going to survive, uh, we can't have military intelligence and attorneys cooperating to undermine faith in the electoral system. Um, the Group, you know, Powell Seth Keschel, Carissa Keschel, his wife at the time, I believe they're divorced now, Linwood, Sidney Powell, of course, Jim Penrose, someone she calls Sharon, I'm, I can probably figure that person out, but uh, haven't yet, and, uh, of course, Doug Logan of these so-called cyber ninjas. Um, according to Powell, interestingly, Phil Waldron is mainly working with Giuliani, although she also spoke with him at times. That's on page 50 of her transcript. Again, these are the same people doing different things, even though Giuliani, sorry, they're doing very similar things, um, even though Giuliani, of course, and Powell have this falling out. According to Powell, Seth Keschel, who is probably worthy of his own episode, uh, she characterized him this way, quote, his primary focus, as I understand it, was, I don't know what to call it. I think he looked at voter registration and voter registration trends, and he had a map and could look at numbers through across counties and states and come to certain conclusions from that on page 51. And by the way, again, you know, the idea that data changes, right? I mean, the idea that there's changes in voter registration, there's a, what oftentimes you're measuring is a huge grassroots drive in order to try to get people registered to vote. And, oh, it's suspicious that these people are all registering to vote here. No, it's not suspicious. There are canvassers pushing through neighborhoods, you know, knocking on doors, calling people up uh, to try to get people to register to vote in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know... Suspicious? No, I mean, it's a normal part of electioneering, but again, you got these people like Seth Keschel who really, really, really want to find, quote, evidence of fraud and who have no background in elections, no background in auditing elections or anything of the sort, but are there because they've already reached their conclusion they're just trying to manufacture the evidence, right? As Giuliani said, you know, they have lots of theories, uh, they just had to manufacture the evidence. Um, Carissa Keschel. Powell, uh, sorry, uh, Seth Kessler's wife, according to Powell, quote, At Timotley, I think she was talking to witnesses, helping draft affidavits, vetting people, funneling information, culling information. She's extremely bright and capable. So on page 51 of her transcript, um, and I don't know the story of their breakup or whatever. It's, you know, so many different little soap opera side stories and these kinds of things. But apparently, um, Cindy Powell is is on Chris's side of the breakup rather than uh, Seth's. She's, she seems to have a high opinion of her. Powell also claims, um, and again, tying this back to DeMotley, there are members of Congress. She can't talk about their. Role because they of course were clients of hers. Conveniently, again, this is a fact pattern throughout the January 6th story. Conspire with people who are attorneys because then you get attorney-client privilege, right? Just an extra layer that you have to go through. She lists Andy Biggs, Louis Gomert Of course, there's the lawsuit on January 6th itself. Goemert' submission to the Supreme Court and is rejected. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. Uh, so on page 58 of her transcript, you know, uh, same same assemblage of the Insurrection Caucus, the core group of the Insurrection Caucus, are all tied in with Sidney Powell as clients. She also says she may have spoken with Scott Perry, but isn't sure about that. Um, but apparently, presumably, Perry's not a client for hers, if she's iffy on whether or not she actually spoke with him. She also worked with a Connie Hare, H-A-I-R, who worked for Gomer, so on page 62 of her transcript. And she may have spoken at a groundswell event. Um, she claims to always forget the name of the group, but does know that it's Jenny Thomas's organization. So again, tied into the Jenny Thomas part of the plot as well. And they asked Powell about um, the, the different data breaches that they were working to conduct. Um, she talks about, of course, Antrim County, which was done by court order rather than, uh, you know, an, an illegal breach. So a little bit different than some of the other stuff. Um, she claims that the machines were inspected by Russell Ramsland, which we do know, Phil Waldron, Conan Hayes, and Todd Sanders on page 102. And then when it comes to Coffee County, interestingly. Powell claims to not know anything about it. Of course, this is what she ultimately winds up pleading to. Uh, she claims not to know if Hayes was able to examine any of the machines or data on page 103. Um, I just, I know I sometimes read from these transcripts. I'll read directly from this one because she lies like three times in the space of about two minutes if you time it out. Question. Do you know who did who did the inspection of the machines? Answer. I think Russ Ramsland, Phil Waldron, maybe Conan and Todd, whose last names I don't remember. I don't remember. Question. Conan Hayes and Todd Sanders? Answer. Yes. I don't know whether they worked on that one or not. I know they worked on some of them. Question. Which? What other machines do you understand Mr. Hayes and Mr. Sanders inspected before Antrim County? Besides Antrim County, excuse me. Answer. Answer. I thought I heard something about maybe a machine in California. I don't know whether anyone ever got access to that or not. And I know somebody was trying to get access to some machines in Georgia, and I don't know what happened with that. That's a lot. Right. Question Do you know whether Mr. Hayes imaged certain hardware in Coffee County, Georgia, in November of 2020? Answer I don't recall. Why? Question Do you know anything about Coffee County? Answer I know it was one of the big problems, and I think we got an affidavit from a woman by the name of Misty Martin who worked there. Question. Again, another perjured affidavit. But you don't know if Mr. Hayes or anyone acting with him accessed those machines? Answer. I remember them trying to. I don't remember whether they did or not. Another lot. Question. In Georgia, and I think we have some correspondence from you on this, is it correct that Mr. Giuliani, at the December 18th meeting that we keep coming back to or going in and out of, that Mr. Giuliani said at that meeting that he had a plan to get access to machines in Georgia? Question, I think that's correct. I think he did. So that's pages 102, 103. So again, you got Giuliani pointing fingers at Powell, and you got Powell pointing fingers back at Giuliani. Now, um, she gets this affidavit from Martin. Again, this is a problem, right? Coffey County is a problem. This is a place, why is it a problem? Trump won this county quite handily. So, they have to go to these deep red places in order to fraudulently secure access to these machines. And these are places that Trump won, right? Trump wins Antrim County. He wins Coffee County. So, again, they're trying to disenfranchise urban voters by going to, uh, you know, places like Antrim County and Coffee County. Uh, Just, again, doesn't logically follow, but none of this nonsense does. On redirect, uh, she remembers that Hayes was trying to get data, but doesn't recall if he was successful. Again, another lie. And she says it's Giuliani's plan to get access to these machines on page 104. Um, you know, But again, they were both trying to get access to these machines, even if they have a grudge against one another. Mount Powell claimed that she spent a lot of time early on attempting to access the machines, but she personally stopped after December 18th and was focused on the Supreme Court briefs uh, from that point, page 104. She also, and this goes back to the grudge, claims that Giuliani directed name-calling and misogynistic behavior toward her at a meeting in Mark Meadows' office with Catherine Fries and Phil Waldron, Possibly on December 21st, 2020, pages 106 107. And this is one of the things that she talks about in her uh, affidavit, or sorry, her, her statement. Um, I won't call it a statement of offense, but basically the part where she's, uh, the part of the video that was released in the Fulton County incident. Um, she claims it's bleed, but he called her uh, a bitch, uh, and among other things. Powell also claims that she has no idea how Julie Fancelli came to donate $100,000 to Sidney Powell PC. That is on page 112. So, you know, who knows, right? I mean, just, I'm sure most lawyers just wind up getting $100,000 checks um, from heiresses that they just can't account for in any way. So, who knows? That's... I don't know if that it, that would be some kind of financial crime, um, but again, it, presumably if you're getting paid, it's because you're doing work, right? So Julie is paying Powell to manufacture this evidence of election fraud. Another person uh, who is involved is one Robert Matheson. Matt Powell claims that he was supposed to help her set up defending the republic as a 501c4. Um, but she balked at the fact that he wanted uh, so much money to do it. So she sets up a, what she calls an election integrity fund uh, at Morgan Stanley instead. So it's not an entity. It's just uh, basically an account that she sets up to pay, uh, once again, for all these things. You know, presumably also things like uh, the Brian Gilles, uh report, right, that was submitted in the Georgia case. That's on page 114. She also claims that she's never heard the name Alex Cannon, which is odd. Okay. I mean, again, you're an attorney. uh, You're doing all this work for this Trump election stuff, but you don't know who Alex Cannon is. Okay. Whatever, I I guess. Um, And she doesn't know whether any of the people who are working on election issues uh, for Trump were paid at all by the Save America PAC, 124, which I can kind of believe, right? She's not really connected with the, those set of actors uh, who are doing this from within the, the Trump organization or the Trump uh, network, uh, you know, the White House, the uh, the campaign, uh, and of course, the various affiliated PACs such as the Save America PAC, which I've talked about uh, quite a bit on the podcast. Powell's also asked about the 13848 executive order memo. Um, she says she didn't draft it and thinks that Bob may have had a hand in it. That's on page 143 of Powell's transcript. But according to Bob's transcript, um, she was basically acting as a scribe. Of course, again, once again, uh, Christina Bob is basically. Uh, Depicting yourself is, is kind of dupe, and I, honestly, I, I kind of believe it, given everything else that uh, happened subsequently with things such as, you know, how she had to sign off for all the uh, fraudulently retained intelligence information at Mar-a-Lago. Now, this executive order business is part of the plot wherein they sought to have Sidney Powell appointed special counsel and have her overturn the election results. Which of course, again, would be unconstitutional. Um, This document, this 1348 executive order is a bit like a motherless child. Um, No one wants to claim credit for it. Here's what Bob had to say about uh, the drafting of this executive order in her transcript, quote, or rather the memo referring to the executive order. Quote, answer, "I I don't have any information on it. It was never anything that I worked on or pushed. It was certainly never anything Rudy. I don't remember anything about it. It wasn't anything I worked on with Rudy. I do remember, you know, the effort to create this thing, but I don't know. This is not my brainchild, so I don't know. That's on page 82. Bob worked closely with Phil Waldron. Uh, Waldron's mentioned 35 times in her transcript, and Waldron, of course, again, a link between the Giuliani team and the Powell team at Tamatly. He's one of the experts both teams draw on for their analysis. And Waldron, of course, was pushing for Sidney Powell to be named special counsel. Question Tell us about any other conversations about, and this is again from Bob's transcript. Tell us about any other conversations about having Ms. Powell or anyone else appointed as a special counsel with respect to election issues. Answer, I don't I don't have any information on it. That's it. Yeah, I already read that excerpt. Um, the next question. Question, now working on, their, on your computer, how does it get to that? And I'm sorry if you already said this. Answer, yeah, that's okay, but they were done with it. They gave me my computer back and said, I don't remember who said it, but it was probably Phil who said, can you email this to Phil or can you email this to me? And I said to Phil from there, and that was it. Question, do you know what Colonel Waldron or anyone else did with this or the other executive order, so the DHS or DOD ones? Answer, I don't know. I don't know if they continued to tinker with it. I don't think it ever went anywhere. I think it was somewhat of an academic exercise to see if there were government authorities that could assist, but I, to my knowledge, nothing ever came of it. Question, do you know whether this was ever of either of the executive orders we're talking about if they were presented to the president for his consideration? Answer, I don't. To my knowledge, they were not, but I don't. I mean, I can't confirm if somebody else did it, but I don't think this ever made it to him. I don't know what, I'm sorry, I, I just interrupted you, but, from the staff what was the last part you said answer i just said i don't know if it would have gotten there i don't know how it would have gotten to his desk because rudy wasn't doing it so i don't know who they could have given it to him who would have done it i don't know pages 82 83 in bob's transcript Now, every aspect, uh, in my view, of Bob's testimony about her meeting with Waldron is suspect, right? Uh, Again, apparently she, you know, is working on this and then sort of hands her computer over to Waldron um, and the other person in the meeting, and they kind of take it over from there, and they write the thing, and then it's disseminated. That explains why this came off of her computer. Um, Okay, Uh, again, as a lawyer, presumably you, you would know better, but she's not a very good attorney. Um, I mean, and also, you know, just given her continued affiliation with Trump, I, you know, I, anything she she says is something that should be taken with a, with a big old grain of salt, right? I mean, even Powell, who I think is uh, truthful in some places, right? I mean, when it comes to her own crimes, lies about them, and so Bob, you know, probably there's 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 an incentive to do some dissembling there. Another. Uh, group with which they were affiliated, which they were operating, is the Amistad Project. Uh, according to Powell, they believe that they were supposed to collaborate together, but they wound up tossing her out of the workspace at the Westin in Arlington, and Powell claims that this is because she insisted on going her own way rather than taking orders from Phil Klein, who was working on the stuff at the Westin. They also asked Powell about Ivan Reichlin. And Powell says that this isn't someone that she ever worked with, although she may have attended a political party, uh, not that kind of political party, at Reichland's house at some point. She has some recollection of that. Quote, There have been any number of people that said they worked with me or for me that really didn't work with me or for me. Page 52. This, of course, referring to Reichland's claims that uh, he had been doing work for Sidney Powell. And... Also, again, from uh, Burns' transcript, he had Cyber Guys who, sorry, this is actually Powell's transcript, uh, who provided an affidavit uh, from page 53. So again, vast perjury farm that they have operating out to Motley, and it is military intelligence people, retired military intelligence people like Flynn and Keshel working together with this team of legal experts at a literal southern plantation that was burned to the ground by uh, General Sherman's Army of T- the Tennessee uh, in 1865 in order to disenfranchise millions of voters and especially black voters in urban areas. Um, and no one, no one ever questions the optics. But I do think it's it's an interesting part of the story, and also it's something we don't know a lot about, right? We have what Sidney Powell said. Uh, We also have Burns information. Flynn, um, again, they asked him about his appearances at Timotley, what he was doing. And of course, he just takes the Fifth Amendment on everything because that's who he is. So Powell got a really sweet deal from Fulton County. And we don't know if uh, Jack Smith, I'm sure she's on his radar, um, whether or not there's gonna be any kind of deal there. But these are all the kinds of things that she can testify to. I know, again, uh, I probably didn't give as much attention to Powell as I ought to have, uh, partly on, on the basis of you know, the fact that she seemed marginal um, because you know, everyone was trying to throw her un- well under the bus. But point of fact, she's not marginal right um, she's participating in all of it and she is connected to all of the central players um and lynn wood of course also connected and has not received nearly the attention he deserves he and powell are working together uh just as closely as for example mike roman and ken cheesebro did in their part of the fake electors plot all right well that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening um want you to enjoy your thanksgiving uh have a lovely thanksgiving happy turkey day and uh happy holidays